Partial funding for this episode of Fruit Bowl comes from Scruff, the queer dating app. More than 20 million members worldwide use Scruff to connect, meet, and express themselves on a platform that prioritizes privacy and security. Available on iPhone and Android. Hey there, Dave Buonik here, creator of Fruit Bowl. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed a little something different about the beginning of this episode. That's right, Fruit Bowl has its first sponsor. It's been a long time coming, and I could bore you with all the ups and downs of my search for funding, but suffice it to say, I have been approached by numerous companies about sponsorship, but almost all of them didn't want to pay me up front and they also asked that I make personal endorsements of their products, which, for me, were deal breakers. See, I'm a fan of public radio. Some queens want to be Lady Gaga or Meryl Streep. I want to be Terry Gross or Ira Glass. I was raised on NPR, and I have always admired the simplicity of the public radio sponsorship model. I like how simple and unobtrusive it is, So I decided I would do the same thing. And Scruff is the first sponsor to agree to my terms. And for that, I am deeply grateful. So how is this going to change Fruit Bowl? Well, for starters, Scruff's money is going to help me pay for an assistant editor who I have already trained and is currently at work on the next episode. This is an enormous relief for me. I've been pushing myself really hard this year to continue to produce episodes while also editing at my full-time job. And more than a few times, I've come dangerously close to burnout. So it feels really good to have some help. But Scruff's support is not indefinite or comprehensive, so my goals for listener support through Patreon continue. Each new patron brings me closer to consistent funding for things like website maintenance, production support, travel. In short, things are evolving here at Fruit Bowl, and I'd love your support. Thanks to Lillian Y. for becoming my latest patron. That brings us to 25 patrons who, together, provide $146 per month. Patrons get advanced access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes for each episode that are not publicly viewable. Learn more at fruitballpodcast.com slash donate. Okay, enough blabbing from me. Here's Dan, who I interviewed in May of 2021, right here in Seattle. My best move sexually is being pre-lubed and to do that using these lube sticks I created, which are about, I don't know, five, six inch long little sticks made of a combination of oils that I can just slide in when it melts and, and just like creates this like slick hole. It's sort of this like coconut chocolatey sort of taste. The friend I sent some to said like this guy just like went to town rimming him for so long that he had like beard burn on his ass. This is Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. My name is Dan. Uh, I'm 46 years old and I graduated from high school in 1993. I was born in Seattle and then grew up north of Seattle uh, in Snohomish County. It's about I don't know, 30 minutes north of Seattle, up I-5 in that little housing development of cul-de-sacs called Misty Meadows. I honestly am not sure what the sort of political leanings of people were in that area. I suspect it was kind of mixed. It's like far enough from Seattle and close enough to rural that I think it's kind of in in a a limbo in terms of how liberal or how conservative. Uh, There was a large Mormon population in our sea of -of cul-de-sacs I lived in. So that certainly brought a a conservatism and a a sexual conservatism, um, you know, growing up where if I went over to a friend's house and they were female, we weren't allowed to go in a room without the door wide open and being checked on really frequently. So my parents still married. 
Uh, I have an older sister who's about three and a half years older than me. Um, and it was just the four of us. And uh, for almost my whole life, we lived in this same house at the end of this cul-de-sac. Arguably, on paper, a lot of stability my whole life in that regard. Looking back, I don't remember knowing any queer people at all, family or not. No queer uncles or aunts or, or really anyone that even to this day that I'm aware of. Um, so I was an island of one, I guess. My best friends from second grade on all turned out to be gay, uh, but it's not something we realized despite the things we were doing until at least middle school or high school, really the high school before we even like uttered the words out loud, I think. It was, you know, lots of people that were into music, really into music, really into theater, really into movies, um, just like artsy people and, and, and artists and, and performers and things. And so no surprise that they're all, almost all queer. Yeah. January of 1992, I think, um, I was laying in bed. I was like bawling just like unconsolably sad and upset and like as I remember it literally pulling hair out of my head like quite literally like tugging at my hair and um, which was my pride and joy back then and my mom coming in and like asking me what was wrong and like trying to console me and like me dodging the real issue over and over and then finally I think I blurted out something like and I'm worried Chris won't like me because I'm gay. And then, wow, um, even to this day, uh, it makes me tear up thinking about this moment. Um, and I remember my mom was supportive in the moment and reassured and also questioned. So sort of like that sort of, maybe you should keep your options open. She's, I remember her saying specifically in that moment, like I can be turned on by a beautiful woman. I'm like, I don't want to hear, I'm, I don't want to hear this right now. Like I, to, now I, re, you know, I respect that and that's lovely. And, and I know it was her attempt at sort of reach, reaching across and like showing me that like, I'm not alone. Ultimately that conversation calmed me down and I was able to sleep. And by the next day she had told my dad, um, then they told my sister. So I ended up, the family sort of came out for me to each other, which was nice because it's hard, right? Um, I think my sister wished I'd told her directly. My dad, apparently one of the first things he said was he wished he'd taken me fishing more, uh, which, you know, a classic like, oh, I could have, I could have saved him from this if I'd done something differently. But I would say within 48 hours, they overcame any any sense of like, this is wrong or this is like, they did something wrong or they failed as parents. and. They started going to PFLAG meetings. They had told my grandmother and their extended family. They literally started the first PFLAG group in Snohomish. They became, you know, those parents that like, they marched in a pride parade before I ever did. That was them my whole life was whatever my sister and my passions were, whatever groups we got involved in, Cub Scouts, or my sister was in Job's Daughters and I was in Malay, which are both these Masonic youth organizations. Whatever we were involved in, they created the space for it and also were the parents that were going to be the like Cub Scout leader or the Bluebird leader or the, you know, the person that chaperones every dance every weekend, whether it's a six hour drive away or not. Um, they were always really supportive of everything we did, and that turned out to extend to my gayness, um, that they were very proud parents of a gay son and, and took on this role of helping other parents come to terms with their own challenges with their, their queer kids. And they love, loved marching in the Pride Parade and like, fuck, I'm going to cry again. Um, my parents love marching in the Pride Parade, people coming up and just hugging them and being hugged by a parent for the first time because they lack that in their own life. And um, they were very proud of that. Maybe movies and TV or maybe Friends was like my first introduction to that sex was a thing. Even before I like understood the logistics or the, the, the physicality of it, but the, that people did something in beds together um, and that that was something, there was something taboo or like that we don't talk about, about that. Um, I grew up watching a ton of soap operas. So my money is on like, that somehow that was 
some of my first exposure growing up watching General Hospital and One Life to Live and All My Children and Loving and Ryan's Hope and I mean <laughs> yeah um, being that kid um it's crazy I'm gay uh <laughs> but I think soap operas might have might have like been my earliest tip off that like something goes on in bedrooms between adults In second grade, I had a boyfriend. At eight years old, there was this, this older boy, one year older, and uh, Eric and I were like super close. And I didn't remember all of this, but like talking to him, talking to my mom, uh, apparently he and I would hold hands during recess and just like walk around holding hands and we'd kiss each other on the cheek. Uh, what I do remember is when we would go, when I would go over to Eric's house for sleepovers, we would like go in the closet and rub our, penises against each other, even though neither of us could get erections because we were too young at that point. And uh, I remember finding a, a, a straight porn magazine one time. I remember, I don't remember where we went. It was probably, I know I was sleeping over at his place and he lived in Everett. So it might have been somewhere in Everett. It was one of those like, we found a porn on the ground outside kind of moments. Like literally like I'm from the generation of like, Often your porn was found in parking lots or like under a log in the woods where like an older kid had hit it. Like I remember not very attractive women um, and I remember very large breasts, but I don't remember the name of it or, uh, or any of that. And then I remember for his birthday, he had a bigger sleepover with like lots of kids and we played strip spelling bee and they were all a great ahead of me. So I basically lost miserably and that was my first experience with this sensation in my penis that I had to pee, but I didn't have to pee. So I like, I remember during that sleepover, I kept going to the bathroom again and again and again, but nothing would come out and it was really confusing. Um, and now, you know, looking back, it was like this, like rumblings of, you know, my prostate and my Cowper's gland and everything in there, like starting to like activate. Um, <laughs> but, uh, my memory of that time is I still didn't have any concept of like putting my mouth on a penis or a penis going in a butt or or even like jerking each other off. Um, it was I was so young at that point that it just there was something appealing and like, I cared about him very much and um, and certainly that those that my body was starting to respond to that in this very confusing way. So my exposure to queer sex and knowing knowing what it was, I think came fairly late, probably middle school. I'm, I'm old enough that like there was no internet. There was no, like my access to porn was, was limited, but I remember a, a video cassette that I still have of this porn called The Big Ones from I think the early eighties. Uh, my close friend from middle school through high school. So at some point in that window, he found it in his stepfather's collection, I believe, or like his mom's boyfriend. I can't remember the exact relationship there, but like that's where he says he got it. That was like the first time I saw like these are grown men having sex. It was made by Falcon and it was very early 80s. Like everyone was completely hairless and super tanned and like tan lines and um, and as the title suggests, all super hung. So set lots of really realistic expectations for me about body types and penis sizes. Uh, no, uh, but at least I, you know, was finally seeing like this is this is at least one representation of how gay men have sex. Um, and then I quickly like made a copy of it, and which is I think literally under this bed right now, because um, <laughs> I have not gotten rid of almost any of my porn over the years because I kind of love the even just know that I have these like rattly old VHS tapes that probably don't play very well anymore. I remember asking my mother once about something going on with my swimsuit area. Um, in my head, it was that like, I was asking her what my, what these things in my scrotum were like. So I was young enough, I just like didn't even have the basic anatomy down. 
of what what is my body and what are these things and i i think it had to do with my balls just maybe they were just getting bigger or something and her panicked response was ask your dad and at the time i was i was a mama's boy i was much closer to my mom and much more comfortable like this was not an easy thing to ask to begin with and i just i didn't get the courage up to ask dad about these things i was 12 or under because there was there was a point at which uh, we lived in a split-level house, and parents' bedroom, sister's bedroom, my bedroom, all at the end of one hallway. And then when I was about 12, 13 years old, they mo- switched my dad's office, which was in the basement, and a bigger room with my bedroom. So I moved down there to have my own room. Part of me in the back of my head is like, they were like, let's give the boy space to do boy things. I never really quite knew why I got the the bigger room and why I got to live on a different floor. But that created this like line in the sand of like, if I had memories that were in the bedroom, not the office bedroom, I knew that they happened kind of 12 or or under. And so it was, it was definitely in that in that original bedroom that my dad sat me down and talked about Basically about, you know, the logistics of procreation, I think. And and I don't really even remember specific if he talked about, like, respecting women or any of that. Certainly there was nothing gay about it. Yeah, it was very, very mechanics focused. I think I was probably so fixated on how nervous I was and how awkward it all felt. So I think like a lot of people, a lot of my education about sex came from from friends and, and, you know, sharing what little we knew and and that sort of game that kids play of like hearing something, not knowing what it is. So like repeating it in a way that hopefully would elicit someone maybe explaining it to them. Um, some of some of that education came from searching my dad's luggage when he came back from business trips. <laughs> so my dad uh, traveled a lot for work and uh, I was a snoop. Like it started when you know, my sister and I were really young and. We got in trouble very young for always finding our Christmas presents. I was that kid, you know, latchkey kid era, so I was often home alone. I would go and look through all the drawers and under the bed and go through things. And at some point, uh, when my dad was home from a trip, I found uh, this, like a book, mostly text, but in the middle I had some pictures. And the title was, She Loved Double Penetration. And I read that thing cover to cover over and over and like would sneak it out and like read it and, and, and look at the pictures and then sneak it back in. And that became a habit. He never said anything to me about it, but he did catch me because suddenly he put a lock on his luggage, but it was a duffel bag. So I just opened the duffel bag around, like sideways and I could still get in and still get, and there was a series of these books, um, but She Loved Double Penetration that was the, the first and the one that, the only one I remember the title to, um, perhaps ironically, I now love double penetration. So <laughs> so that's that was definitely an education sex, although the way I do it's a little different than the way she was doing it. That was in the downstairs room, so I was at least 13 at that point that I started finding those and and looking at those. I remember masturbating in the upstairs room and the, the forms that that took initially was a lot of like grinding on pillows. I was not, I did not use my hands for years. I was one of those guys that like it never occurred to me to like stroke my penis. Um, so I would grind on things. I would make contraptions i like i remember specifically i had a mason jar that i took then fake fur from my mom's sewing kit and lined it with fake fur to create kind of like a pocket and that because i knew that i knew that vaginas had like hair on the outside of them so i thought okay maybe that makes sense and then i like put a bunch of lotion inside of it and then like would like put my penis in that not very effective um, the grinding was much more effective and it was a long time, probably because I was using such ineffective methods, it was a long time before I actually finally ejaculated. That may have involved my hand and that was definitely in the upstairs bathroom because I remember h- how surprised I was and I also distinctly remember it was orangish. So I don't know what was going on. Um, it was like months of apparently edging myself and edging myself and like my balls were working overtime and finally like this stuff comes out, which surprised me. So I think it was before the talk um, and, uh, and it was a weird color in retrospect because it never came out that color again. 
the first like celebrity crush I can remember was Mary Stuart Masterson in Some Kind of Wonderful because there's a scene where she's in the locker room with all the other girls and all the other girls in their bras and panties and she's in a fucking pair of tidy whities and that was the hottest thing. I knew like I was supposed to be attracted to girls but like of course the girl that I'm most attractive to is like the most boyish girl in men's underwear. So that was that was I think she was my first celebrity crush. Some of my earliest celebrity crushes were, I don't know if he counts as a celebrity. He was a model in International Mail uh, in the 90s. And I was obsessed with him. And we gave him, me and a friend gave him a name, but I don't remember what it was. Uh, <laughs> my entire family knew that I loved the ads in the middle of the newspaper every, that came every Sunday. And so I, I don't think they understood why, but I would take all of them and then I would cut all the men's underwear out and put them in like an old photo uh, scrapbook. So under my bed, I had this huge book of just men in underwear, men in underwear, men in underwear. And then I found discovered International Mail while at the mall uh, one time by myself and like, oh my God. And then this one guy, um, Brian, he was beautiful and like a perfect ideal, I thought, and beautiful hair. And I feel like he had a little bit of chest hair and like, he was just stunning. My sister was in this youth group and my parents were always chaperoning everything. And so from the time I was about nine years old on, I was spending every weekend on camping trips and at dances uh, with mostly high school age kids. And um, I specifically remember how much I glommed onto this older boy named Dennis and how sweet he was about it. And like, he was very, like very much a mentor just in like being a guy and, and being just existing in this world. Nothing ever happened with him. Nothing. He went into the military, I believe, and um, I may have stalked him a little bit since then, but um, it was short-lived and like the first in a series of older boys who I, who I got crushes on. Um, I have looked back on my life and realized like I was seeking out a big brother from the time I was like eight, nine years old. And I, I have had this series of often straight, sometimes gay, uh, men in my life who were older and were able to be that older brother and like um, I had crushes on them often uh, but that wasn't I didn't push that because um, I respected that they weren't gay and so uh, but I, I got this fulfillment of this this older brother that I never had and being able to roughhouse and like play horse with basketball and lose terribly and um, and just learn to drink and learn to smoke cigars and sort of like they were sort of my man mentors um, through the years. And um, and one of the most significant ones was a friend of mine, also straight. He used to play basketball in high school and he would play horse with me and just like annihilate me. And we would like make crazy bets that I would always lose. And like, he's the one that taught me to smoke cigars. He's the one that like I would drink with on the weekends and taught me to drink Mad Dog Orange Jubilee. And um, we had a ton of fun. And he was my big brother and we loved each other. And we've even talked about that since then. We're still friends. Um, a couple years ago, I w was down in Portland and he lives with his family there. And like, I went with them to the fair and like hung out and he and I had beers while his kids were riding on the rides and, and, and hung out with his wife, who's amazing. Um, and so uh, it was a, a mutual friend of ours that was like, he was your big brother. Like he, you loved him, he loved you, like that, you know, that was a real relationship, like, and it, it suddenly all clicked, this pattern going back, I think, to Dennis, of many, many older guys. <laughs> now it is a full kink and a fully realized sex play, and also still has that same sense of, like, outside of sex, that older brother, that mentoring, that, like, teaching me to like shoot a BB gun or like I have a Cub Scout uniform that I wear and like Big Bro would, was my scout leader and I would go over to his house and we were literally working through the entire like Cub Scout manual to be for me to become a Wolf Scout and the, the line between where it was kink or sexual got very blurry between that and um, I've been really grateful to have that that mentor 
and that to have a big brother that I can rely on. Yeah, so even now, uh, having a big brother as part of my sex life it, it is a thing, and 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 that age play and that to to have that specific relationship and to be able to explore that is uh, really lovely. My friend and I used to come down on weekends from Snohomish County up in Everett uh, area where we lived. I would have been 17 and hang out at friends' flop apartments with a bunch of punk kids and goth kids and club kids and often spend the whole day just kind of hanging out. And, and then usually we would all end up going to an underage nightclub uh, to go dancing at night. In Seattle, yeah, there was a, for a while we would go to the underground, which was like a goth club. Uh, but I think by this point we had switched to going to a club called The Oz, uh, which later became Deviate. Uh, it's like it was right underneath the Space Needle, basically, like across the street. They had dancing for under, you know, you're supposed to be over 18, but we had fake ID. All the gays sort of danced on one side and like everyone else danced on the other side. So there was there was kind of this community there. Um, so it was definitely on one of the one of the days at that house leading up to going out probably that night. And um, this guy I hadn't seen before showed up and I was like super infatuated immediately. He was kind of cocky, probably kind of a dick. That was what I was into. And at one point he's like, oh, I need to go run to my apartment and grab something and, and come back. And he may have like asked me if I wanted to come with him. And everyone in the room knew exactly what was happening, probably except to me. Uh, so we go to his house got whatever it was. And then I remember like he was going to play the song for me that he wanted me to hear. So like we sat down on his bed and he put on this, maybe a CD, probably a CD. And it was like the B side of Erasure's Blue Savannah, which was this song called No GDM, um, which had the word queer in it. And like, anyway, so he starts playing that. And then like, I think we start kissing. He like makes his moves. He was, he was 21. So a little bit older classic pattern with me and then what I remember is me sucking his dick I don't remember if I even pulled my dick out I don't remember me getting off at all but I remember like it was exciting but also like I was completely unfamiliar other than what I'd seen in movies and like so I did I did my best and apparently I did good enough because then he came in my eye <laughs> so uh which immediately turned bright red and then we you know clean up as best we can, go back to the to the apartment where everybody else is. And like, it's very clear what had happened that like all of a sudden I've got like one bloodshot red eye. I was not super embarrassed about it. I think I was just like more excited that that, that happened um, because like HIV was such a huge threat. Like the idea that like this substance that we were taught to believe was like, you know, could kill us, uh, his semen went in my eye, which is like an unprotected capillary filled space. Like that was definitely anxiety producing, producing. And I know that day that was in my head um, that like, okay, maybe I got AIDS because I let someone come in my eye. I think he had a pattern of doing this. I think everyone knew when, when this guy like invited someone to go, cause he had already dated one of my other friends and broken up and then after he and I dated and broke up he then dated another friend like it he was sort of working his way through people um but like also in a way mentoring us all in gay sex and then he and I started dating for a little while and uh he even came home for Easter dinner one time which is very awkward but he was also the person that like fucked me for the first time and that was at at my friend Zach's house I had arranged with my parents to like be able to sleep over at Zach's and the boyfriend was there as, as well as another friend. And then, you know, it's time to go to bed and we go into one bedroom together and he puts on Concrete Blonde, the song Joey on repeat. <laughs> so that song just keeps going over and over and over as we sort of get down to business and, and he fucks me for the first time. And uh, I don't remember it very well. What I mostly remember is what my friend said, because he was sleeping in his mom's bed on the other side of the wall. And he claims I sounded like a werewolf. <laughs> 
and that I left huge scratches in the wall. And I don't remember any of that, but like, you know, getting anally penetrated for the first time, I could see how maybe those things were true. But um, I was, I guess I enjoyed it enough to like repeat because uh, like we continued dating and he continued fucking me. And I think he was also the first person that fucked me with uh, using shampoo as lube because it was all that was there in the shower. Because he lived with two roommates in like a studio apartment and we would like fuck in the shower. And yeah, that was not good. Do not recommend that, kids. I mean, he should have known better, right? You know, this was pre-prep age of AIDS, like, we were still very anxious. It was, this would have been like, yeah, 92. Definitely using condoms, but then using con completely inappropriate lubricant. I distinctly remember the night I learned to flirt. A good friend of mine, a woman, she was a dominatrix. She and I would drive up, I think monthly, from my college town, which is right by the Canadian border. We'd go up to Vancouver, BC, to this fetish night called the Betty Page Social Club. And it was like all genders, all expressions of sexuality. The main rule was to get in, you either needed to be dressed in something that could be considered a fetish of some sort, like a uniform or leather or rubber, or, or you had to strip naked. So it basically kept anyone from just like coming in and not participating. It's very Burning Man to like no spectators. And so we would go up to this thing and uh, another friend of ours would also frequently come up. She kind of looked like Betty Page, like beautiful porcelain skin and black, black hair and blue, blue eyes. And like, anyway, the three of us were like these kinky kids, but I was really inexperienced compared to both of them. Um, I had never really learned to like flirt or hit on anyone or anything. And so I remember, I remember one night we were sitting near the top of a stairwell in this club and they were telling me basically the basics of flirting, like look at him and keep looking at him and like make sure it's clear that you are looking at him and don't be creepy and like look away, but then look back, you know? And like, you know, who here tonight have you seen that like you're that like turns you on or like has looked at you? And so there was this guy and like, I'm sure I thought he was way out of my league, tall and muscular and fucking gorgeous. And he walked by, started walking down that stairwell, and I was looking at him, and he was looking at me, and I looked away, and then I looked back, and he was still looking at me as he walked down that stairwell. And god damn, that's magical. That first time that you realize that, like, he's looking at me because he thinks I'm hot, and I'm looking at him because I think he's hot. I think I was wearing a German military uniform that night. Anyway, um, that might have been the first time someone took me home from a, like a club or a bar or anything. And my friends had to pick me up the next morning. It was amazing. We had great sex. He was super hot. He was a fucking fireman. Like, oh my God. And he was a massage therapist. Like it was crazy. And we kept in touch for a little while. Yeah, he was like porn star hot in my, in my eyes. And I like forever, forever grateful to these two women that taught me how to flirt and got me my first hookup, I guess, kind of, you know, my first time getting taken home. Yeah, so amazing. So my therapist refers to me as a uh, empathic metamorph, uh, which is a term that she got from an episode of Star Trek. Uh, with the beautiful Famke Jansen, who is on the short list of women who can fuck me. She's an alien who's an empath, and she's a metamorph, meaning she can read you, understand what you want her to be for you, and then she becomes that for you. And so I basically wrote a book report on this episode to help me understand myself, because uh, I'm one of those people that most of my life had a hard time getting in touch with what I wanted, and it was easier for me to perceive what other people wanted and either do that or be that or say that. Um, 
I think I'm finally pulling out of that quite a bit. Um, so finally having some great relationships that allow me the space to ask for what I want, being polyamorous and having multiple partners uh, and paramours and whatnot uh, allows me to sort of get what I want from different people and be who I want to be with different people. I'm still very much an empathic metamorph. I'm still like, I code switch heavily, um, but they're all parts of genuine parts of myself. So I bring this up in the context of like, when did I first fall in love? Because it makes it difficult to know which of those people that I dated or was in love with, I was genuinely in love with or that I was, I believed I was supposed to be in love with. And so I acted in that way. I would definitely rule out the first boyfriend and probably like any high school and early college. It was a lot of just like exploring relationships. After that first boyfriend, the next, I think, two people I dated, we didn't have any anal sex. One of them, we didn't have any sex. We were just like some fraudage and things. And then the next one, I think we had some oral sex. So I kind of like went back in the closet sexually for a while in a way and only explored like kind of on my own with homemade dildos and things. But so at the end of college, I met a guy at a tea dance um, when I was down in Seattle for the weekend. It was 97, so I would have been 25, is that right? Is that the right math? No, 22. I had a Sunday tea dance at a place called Timberline that used to be here that was this big like sort of Western gay and lesbian country Western bar. Uh, but on Sundays they had a, a classic gay tea dance with like beer bus, like super cheap, like 75 cent cups of like, I don't know, Budweiser or whatever and great disco music. and. It was a scene and it was amazing. And I, I met this guy there. We really hit it, hit it off. He had a partner. His partner was on a book tour. Uh, their relationship was open. And then when the boyfriend came from back from the book tour, I met him. We really hit it off. I graduated from college and moved in with them. That was like the, it felt like one of the first really genuine relationships. Not to discount the value or, the, or any of the relationships before that, but like I... I felt really invested and I cared deeply for them and that that may have been the first time truly falling in love, but it's tricky. <laughs> it's very tricky. It is tricky. And it's a it, weird word. It is, and everybody interprets it in a different way. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's not reciprocated. Like I've been married mm -hmm. and I, I certainly loved him um, and that was reciprocated. Um, I think John Water. I think it was a John Waters quote that he said, like in every relationship, one person's more into the other person, and the trick is to like hide the fact that you're not, that like you like them better than they like you. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and I, I think that's probably true in every like because love means different things to different people, and um, having these intense like multi-year relationships with multi-people that I have now. They are all so distinct. It would be hard to like stack rank them or like who I meant more, who I love the most. But like the love I have for each of them is very distinct, and the relationships I have are very distinct and different, um, but not necessarily less or more. A lot of the sex I had felt embarrassing for a really long, like decades of my life. I have what I would describe as a statistically uh, average length penis. It's five and three quarters. And it is below average in girth. And so like it reads small. <laughs> and maybe it's because of that porn I watched or just every porn everywhere. Always uh, like big dicks are sort of lauded and small dicks are, are something to be embarrassing. We talk about big dick energy. We talk, we make jokes about people like, oh, they're com overcompensating for their small dick. Like it's pervasive and it feeds the cycle of like, if you have a, an undersized dick, there's something wrong with you, even though you literally can't do anything about it. Like nothing can be done about it really. I mean, you can add girth with like stuff that I'm not willing to do, but. Um, and then I also, on top of that, so I have this like smaller dick that I have, I'm self-conscious about. And then on top of that, I had very little control over my ejaculatory response. So like I, I, I consider myself a premature ejaculator into my 40s. Um, it's something I've only in recent years felt like I've mostly overcome. And so almost every sexual experience ended for me before I wanted it to. Um, I, I essentially felt like 
the this myth that like if you're, to be a top you need to have a big dick and um uh like literally if i tried to fuck someone it the time it took to get it in was as far like i was done i would i had already come um condoms were like the standard condoms were loose on me um, it would fall off easily like it was just like it was a mess so i basically was a terrible top and never didn't pursue it um, so I never learned to do it, which then fed this cycle of being a premature ejaculator because I didn't ever practice fucking anyone. So it was, it was a lot of embarrassing moments. It was a lot of like, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 ah, ah. And like a lot of feeling like I disappointed people and a lot of people not, not saying the right things in those moments, even if, even if it was saying nothing or like saying, oh, that's okay. Like, I've learned since that there's there's a better thing that can be done in that moment. And there was a night I was at Basic Plumbing, which uh, used to be a sex club in Seattle. And I say sex club, not bathhouse, because you didn't even get a towel. You just like you went in in your street clothes. You often like take your shirt off, maybe. But you'd walk around in your street clothes. So I was in my jeans walking around in this like sort of dark maze and and glory holes and things. And um, and this guy, I see this guy and he's stunning and he like lock size on me and we start like making out and like touching and things and then I just came in my pants right there which was which was an ex even for me was an extreme of like oh my god like like I was not a like come in my pants before I, like it wasn't that bad usually but this time like just the intensity of it and like how hot I thought he was and he thought that was the hottest fucking thing that I, he was that I was so turned on by him that I that like just making out with him made him me come and that was I wish that I could call that a turning point um it was a moment when I realized like I started to reframe it in my head a little bit and I wish I could have run with that um because it was that was in my 20s and it like you know two more decades almost before things really shifted for me in that regard some of what's shifted is 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 identifying as a boy. So I relate to some of my partners anyway in a very in sort of an age play sort of way. So um, despite our actual ages, um, my daddy is 12 years younger than me, um, but he's very much the daddy and very uh, dominant and um, sexually anyway. And uh, and I have a big bro who is eight years younger than me but is also six foot six. So that helps with the age play feeling <laughs> that I'm, I'm five foot nine, he's six foot six. So um, he's very much a big brother to me. And despite being 46 years old, I'm very much a boy. And that my dick being kind of on the smaller end actually plays into that in this beautiful way that they appreciate so much. And they like, they tell me how much they love my boy dick. And, you know, when they call it my little boy dick or like call it my boy dick, like I'm proud of it instead of being embarrassed of it. And um, it became an asset. And like all my partners have started to let me top them. And my boy dick's perfect for people that are pretty much like almost exclusively tops and can't take a dick and like they're tops largely for the same reason that I was a bottom my whole life because it doesn't work for them usually. But with me, I can slide right in and they can experience being a bottom and it feeling good and it not being overwhelming or hurting. So it's like in addition to like it playing well into this age play thing that I love so much. It also now is allowing me to like learn to be a top and to explore that side of myself, which is so confidence building and so empowering. And to like, I'm still mostly a bottom, let's just be real. But like, you know, there's something like to be able to experience a, a broader spectrum of my sexuality and my body through a lot of edging, Big Bro got me into doing like camming and going on Bait World and, and Dudes Nude and just like jerking off on cam. And a lot of that is about like edging and like doing it for a long time and, and that and um, like going to Rain City Jacks and like jerking off with other people. It, it helped me finally after so many years build control around ejaculating and coming too fast. And so now I can actually like fuck my partners for a little while and like they don't want to get pounded and they don't want to get fucked for hours. So, you know, like the amount of time it takes me to come 
still shorter than probably average, but like it's perfect for them and it's sexy for them and they love it and that um, we talk about it. And um, so it's this thing that, that I considered my greatest sexual embarrassment for most of my life has now completely been reframed um, and, and it, it's wonderful. to describe sort of my best sexual move I think it's kind of a, a trifecta that all boil down to trying to be the best bottom I could ever be like when I realize like I can't I can't top I can't like I come too fast my dick's too small for people to want me to fuck them these things that I thought were true so much of my life I like dedicated myself to being the best bottom I could be like I'm gonna get no gag reflex and I'm gonna like you know be able to take a big dick and all these things but the, the things now that my partners like comment on, they know I am always cleaned out. Like I joke that if it's a day that ends, a day of the week that ends in why I'm cleaned out, like I take the longest showers of anyone you know. No matter what, I can, I'm ready to go. Like they also know not, like if we're gonna have a date, like fuck me before they, fuck me before you feed me. <laughs> That's kind of one of the rules, because uh, uh, like don't don't ruin the clean out actively by like let's go to dinner first and have spicy Thai food. No, 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 no. Thai, Thai spicy Thai food happens after you fuck me. So I'm like I'm always cleaned out. I also pre lube, and I literally I mean is it okay if I show it? I literally like experimented and created like lube sticks that are a combination of like shea butter and cocoa butter and coconut oil that I have on hand all the time. And like, so after I clean out, I will slide one of those in, let it melt a little bit and then like put the rest back in the bag. So I'm like conditioning the skin and also pre-lubed and ready to go. Um, this is something you made yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like Ikea sells these little like ice cube trays that make like stick ice cubes. Um, so I used those and I like, I went through, it was actually for scouts. Um, I don't remember which badge requirement we figured we applied this to. We were, we were creative about the badge requirements for scouts, but um, one of the, one of them was I did this whole like trying different ratios of the three ingredients. Um, and finding the ones that like where it, it, it stayed stiff at room temperature still and, and all that and like did a whole analysis of what the melting points of all of them were, what the like pros and cons of those ingredients and what they did for the body and some of them are natural antibiotics and some of them are like uh, do this to the skin or like create help with elasticity or like all that sort of thing. So I did a whole sort of report on on these lube sticks that I created. And like for Christmas, I've made a, that, that the reason that it looks all packaged is I made a bunch for, uh, for my, my paramours and my metamors for, uh, and friends for Christmas, uh, this past year. And um, what's it called? I call them bum bomb. Cause I'm obsessed with alliteration, <laughs> like completely obsessed with alliteration. A friend just tried, tried them out and they, because it's cocoa butter and coconut oil and shea butter, which doesn't really have a taste. Um, it basically like smells, I say it's, what does it say on the back? Leaves your whole soft lubricated smelling like the beach and tasting like a candy bar. Um, so like, it's sort of this like coconut chocolatey sort of, of taste. So like, you know, like if someone goes to rib me, like it tastes good. Like it doesn't just taste like a clean hole. It tastes like a yummy hole. My, the friend I sent some to uh, said like it, this, this guy just like went to town rimming him for so long that he had like beard burn on his ass. So that's the second part of it is like, okay, I'm cleaned out all the time. I'm pre-lubed. And then uh, this is the thing that I think gets commented the most by my partners is like, I, I don't know when this shifted for me. And uh, I, I know I wasn't always like this, but I can come and keep getting fucked for a really long time and it still feels good to me like a lot of people have this sort of like response that like if they themselves come they need the dick out of them now like they, suddenly it gets really overwhelming um i assume it has something to do with the prostate but i can come while being fucked and then keep getting fucked for a really long time and getting fucked hard and like for like you know another 45 minutes or whatever and I enjoy it it's not like it suddenly becomes unbearable and I'm just gritting my teeth um and like that that's the thing that partners 
like have like after we're done, after they're finally done, they comment on that they love that about me and that that's, you know, they, that, that that's unique about me. My almost daily routine for cleaning out to be ready anytime a top wants to fuck me, uh, it gets a little involved and it takes a bit of time, but it's also, it's me time. Like if I had to describe my sort of classic cleaning out process, it would start with a cup of coffee or two um, to kind of help get things moving and then probably have a small meal so that there's like something in my stomach that sort of like might be the last thing I eat for a little while. I don't starve myself to be clear. Like, you know, I'm not one of those people that takes a modium to try and clog things up or anything like that. Like I often take fiber pills to kind of help kind of keep things moving and, and, and regular. So once, once that coffee's kicked in, so maybe 20 minutes later, usually like poop, get out the bulk of it. And then uh, I take my phone and I put it in its little mount. I bring a little Bluetooth speaker in and I start listening to podcasts. And that helps me gauge time a little bit. Uh, I also have a clock in the shower uh, now. Sometimes cleaning out for a long time makes you late for things. Uh, so, uh, so I've got a clock in there. I've got my podcast to listen to. And then I've got a shower shot set up directly hooked to kind of a diverter off my shower uh, so I can have a little toggle that I can control how much pressure is coming through that versus what's coming through the just standard shower. And so I'll hop in the shower. I'll usually like wash myself head to toe lightly and then just start doing cycles of squirting water up my butt at a low pressure, like you have to be kind of careful there. And I keep the water on the cooler side. Thankfully, this house doesn't have water pressure shifts or water temperature shifts. Those are things you have to be really careful with if you're using a, a direct hose off your, your shower line because you don't want to like suddenly have the water pressure spurt and like puncture your, your rectum or colon. Um, you, don't, you certainly don't want to scald yourself. Do you use lube to insert the shot? I don't need lube to insert it initially. Usually just the, the, the water that's kind of coming out the end kind of helps it slide in. Then I just start doing cycles of like filling up a little bit and letting it come out. Some people think it's gross, but I just let it go down the shower drain. And like, you know, if, if a lot comes out, I'll turn the pressure on the hose all the way up and squirt it all out of the tub and then adjust it back down and keep going and just listen to my podcasts. I have um, this little board that's designed for scuba divers. So it's a, it has a waterproof pencil and a waterproof board. So I, I take, I stand in the shower and like take notes and. Are you sitting or standing? Oh, standing. Yeah. Yeah. You standing usually with like one, one foot up on one edge of the, of the tub. I've got one of those, an organizer for tub toys for kids that kind of goes across the whole tub, a uh, little plastic thing. And in that I've got a variety of plugs and some dildos of different sizes and then I keep a squirt bottle of J-Lube in there and so after I feel like I'm fairly cleaned out I'll take um, this one dildo in particular that's I guess ribbed is would be the, it's like gets thick thicker thinner thicker thinner the whole way but like consistent and uh, I will put a little bit of J-Lube on that and slide that in and kind of fuck myself a little bit with that and then pull it out and then go back to cleaning and sort of mimics that like you're getting fucked and it creates a bit of a vacuum in it. So it might, it might loosen th some things up that, that the water didn't get. Um, if I'm going to get fucked by a really big dick or fisted, I will spend even more time and sometimes try and clean out past that sort of second sphincter where like where the rectum goes into the uh, sigmoid colon which is harder and takes longer and, and riskier because you can also get water trapped up there that then releases later. I've learned my lessons with that, with being very careful and making sure there's a window of time between clean out is done to when the sex is going to happen. You need a, a safe window if, so you know that like if, if you have a blowout <laughs> that you have time to like do a quick, another quick clean out. How long do you think that time, amount of time is? Uh, I usually try and leave at least 20 minutes post clean out to, to when I'm going to see whoever it is. Sometimes it's not possible, but so the, the clean out itself usually takes about an hour or more. I, it's become this like really lovely. It's when I listen to my podcasts and it's when I like take notes and prepare for things and brainstorm for work and 
my water bill really sucks, but like I, it's, you know, it's, it's my me time, if you will. It's like, even though I live alone, it's like this very intimate personal moment. And also is like a gift I'm giving my partners to be ready for them. And, um, you know, I've got all these toys and, um, like if I'm gonna, if we're gonna play around with fisting stuff, like I'm using toys that stretch me out bigger and bigger. So there's some work to it and also some like intense pleasure and, and things. So like, it's I, arguably sex with myself, a form of it. So yeah, it's, it's become just a ritual for me. So how do you know when you're clean? <laughs> yeah, I've kind of used to seeing sort of different phases of stuff coming out a little bit. In my experience with, with my body, which is going to differ person to person a little bit, like I think there's this wave of like your body producing some mucus to sort of replenish. Because I'm washing out like everything that's all, all this protective mucus that's lining the that, but it's all like mixed with shit initially. <laughs> so I wash all that out. And then at a certain point, I think it's starting to like reproduce that. And like at some point, like there's a one of the flushes, there's this like lighter brown mucusy almost stuff that comes out. That's like a sign that I'm getting close. Like I try and clean out until like the water is consistently clean for a while and it's like warm and nice. And so it's, it's not like it's a chore so much, but. And then once, once I reach a point where I feel like, okay, nothing more, I've, I've flushed it a bunch of times and nothing more is coming out and I don't feel any fullness. And I, you know, it just, it feels like the way that I've gotten used to feeling when I'm, when I'm there. Um, and there's no like pressure to eliminate anything more or anything like that. Um, physically, I will then like hose my legs off really good <laughs> with the pressure, pressure hose, clean, make sure I've washed down the, the tub again. And then, then I will wash head to toe again and pay particular attention to my legs and, and then shave or do those sorts of things. Actually, I usually shave while I'm cleaning out. So like I'll have a hose up my ass and I'll be like, you know, shaving my head cause I shave my head bald and then shave my neck. I pluck the hairs out of the top of my beard because I'm too lazy to have to shave that all the time. It's easier for me to just pluck the, the random ones and then uh, dry off. Then I will take the, the bum balm, the lube sticks that I made, and I'll slide one of those in to sort of helps with pre-lubing as well as um, kind of reconditioning the skin a little bit and make up for the fact that I just washed away all this, all this protective layer. Um, and then, then I'm ready to go. I think a lot of disappointments along the way sexually were either about shame and this like shame about my body, shame about my dick and that it, you know, it's not big enough or I come too fast or, you know, like I, you know, I have a belly or like I'm not this like masculine ideal or took the form of like just being really bad at asking for what I want. So I was very kinky and exploring all sorts of kinks and things in my 20s. And then started dating someone who like and and fall, I say falling into monogamy, uh, sort of like landing in a monogamous relationship with someone who wasn't as kinky or hadn't explored that. And I kind of shut down uh, my sexuality in a lot of ways. Um, and that's I I, I want to make it clear that that's on me, not on him. Um, my marriage, in large part, things fell apart because I did a terrible job of saying what I wanted. Um, from the beginning, like from the like, yeah, we can be monogamous. Like I can do that. Like I, I truly thought I could, but I also know that some of saying that was, I thought that's what he wanted. And so that's what I said. The lines of communication just kind of around sex just kind of slowly shut down and the amount of sex slowly shut down as a result. Um, that was all conflated by me getting HPV and basically I had dedicated my life to be the best bottom ever. And then I, something happens to me that prevents me from being able to get fucked for a, a, quite a while. Um, so I basically lost, I lost my superpowers. Like I, like HPV was my kryptonite and I couldn't do the thing that I, the one thing I thought I was actually good at in sex. And so I lost all of my confidence that HPV was really pervasive and really hard to get under control. It took years and years and years. Um, I literally had lasers shot in my butt 
to burn away uh, these cancerous or precancerous. Um, I was lucky enough to get one of those strains because uh, the vaccine didn't exist when I was a kid. Uh, and I already had this by the time it got okay, okayed for adults. And uh, so I, I lost all my sexual confidence while I was in the middle of this relationship. And then that combined with, you know, me being a poor communicator, basically like shut down our sex life almost completely. And we started building on that a little bit toward the end, but um, other factors started playing in and it just, it just didn't work out. But I mean, we were together for 15 years, so it was a, it's a long window of just having very low sexual confidence and, and not exploring any of my kinks and suppressing all of those parts of myself because I just, I tried to convince myself I didn't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. But that was like, I had fun in my 20s and now this is who I am now. I know now that that's a terrible way to like that's dishonesty you know even if even if you're lying to yourself it's still dishonesty that's probably been my biggest struggle is learning that it's okay to ask for what you want and um, even if that's embarrassed something you think is embarrassing or shameful or or even if you're 99 percent sure that they're not willing to give you that thing um, it's okay to ask and to learn to accept no and to not feel devastated when you get rejected, when, when what you ask for is rejected or, or not available. And um, being polyamorous, like I'm also, I also live alone and like been introduced more recently to the term solo poly, where like you have, you're polyamorous, you have, you're, you're in love with multiple people, you have relationships with multiple people, but you also value your relationship with yourself maybe above and beyond everything else. And you don't, you don't live with someone and you don't necessarily want to. I'm still kind of on the fence there, um, but I definitely, after 15 years with someone, like right now I, I need I need my autonomy and my own space. And so, yeah, it's this idea that like, you're not interested in going up a relationship escalator, as they mm -hmm. say with anyone, like that, like, okay, we're dating, so now we're boyfriends and boyfriends means this. And then now we're going to like, buy a house together and now we're going to get married and now we're going to have kids and like you basically get on this relationship escalator and it takes you to the top which is apparently dying maybe before the other person maybe after I don't know how you win but um <laughs> but like I'm that you know I've, I've gotten on the relationship escalator and I got pretty far on it and um I love the time that I had with him and I have so many fond memories and I don't regret it, but uh, it's not what I want for myself right now. That's That's been a huge area of growth for me over the last few years in particular, I'd say. Coming out at 17, like initially, I didn't really hook up. Other than I guess getting cum in my eye was could be kind of a hookup, I guess. But like it was all very in person. There was no accessible internet at that point. We had my mom was a computer science instructor, so we had we generally had whatever the latest and greatest was in terms of computer technology in the house. But it wasn't until I went away to college that I really was like had dial up internet and ended up running an online porn company actually for a little while um, called 100% Men. But before that, and even, even in those early days, like the like chat rooms were the closest to like hookups that I ever uh, had. And and I, I had sex, sex, like anal sex, like fun, crazy sex with that first boyfriend. And then I kind of shut down for a while. And then it wasn't till like, say maybe mid college, I was at least 19. Uh, maybe before I really started learning to flirt and learning to hook up and stuff. I don't know if it's better or worse now. I know people that struggle because they're better in person and hookup culture has moved so much into apps, especially in the past year where like we couldn't really go to bars much and you couldn't hook up and like the best you could do like was maybe like chat with people in an app about the things you'd like to do but don't want to because of too risky. Um, prep has certainly changed the face of everything like that anxiety that I felt about every single sexual interaction back then. That 15 year relationship is 
like prep came out while I was in this monogamous relationship. So like everything, like coming out of that, like everything has changed. Like it, like going into that relationship, condoms were assumed and now condoms are not like the assumption is no condoms unless you like insist on them. It's become this different navigation that, that, than it ever was before. And my two boyfriends I met on scruff technically. So, um, I guess I'm okay at it. Um, but I'm terrible at hookups. Like I think I've hooked up maybe once via scruff. Like I just, I panic, like it starts to get to that point And I just like, uh, 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 and put the phone down. Um, so maybe I'm a total cock tease. I don't know. I'm also such a slut. So like, I don't know why this disconnect exists. I just panic. So I'm better in person. I think it was when I was 16 that Jesse and his boyfriend invited me to a three-way and I panicked. I don't even know if I ever responded. Like we didn't even have texting then or email. So it must've been like a phone call. Anyway, like these two hot guys invited me to have a three-way with them and I panicked. And like, if I could go back in time, that's what I would say, have that three-way with Jesse and his boyfriend. They are hot. They'll be gentle with you. They're very sweet. It would have been, I think, lovely. And I probably would have learned a lot and maybe things would have, you know, my path would have been different, but I don't regret the path I took. But if I could go back even further, I would tell my 13 year old self, maybe don't try and come so fast <laughs> edge. Like I would teach, I would teach 13 year old Danny about edging and um, that about sexual endurance and that, that it would serve me well. Like maybe I would, be much more versatile much earlier and you know it would have changed potentially everything and being able to be confident in yourself is like part of the reason I clean out aggressively some might say over too much uh is so I can be confident like so I'm not I'm not getting fucked and wondering like uh, is something gonna like come out like is it gonna be messy am I gonna smell something um like that's confidence building for me like in that moment and confidence is sexy like if, if I could have been more confident sexually earlier, I think that would have changed a lot. I would tell both of those versions of myself because the 16 year old probably needed to hear it again to be open to sexual stuff and to ask for what you want and to like not be afraid to get rejected. And that there are tons of people out there that think you're hot, even if you don't think you're hot and like capitalize on that. Yeah, you know, have fun, be careful for sure, but have fun. Fruitful interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Syra B. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. <laughs>